It looks like I'm making a habit of doing an annual end of summer big picture episode. Last year, I spoke to Marshall Koslov about the realignment of American politics. You can check that conversation out at episode 301. But this year, I'm going even bigger picture, even more philosophical, even more what does it all mean. Today, we're going to talk about societal collapse. Joseph Tainter is an anthropologist and historian at Utah State University. In 1988, he published an invaluable book, The Collapse of Complex Societies. As the title suggests, Dr. Tainter explored, quote, the dilemma of fallen empires and devastated cities, the troublesome image of, quote, the vast human endeavors that have mysteriously failed. Societies, he posited, are problem-solving organizations. What then causes them to cease solving problems? What, in short, causes them to die? Dr. Tainter looked at various discrete factors that are often credited with causing collapse, such as resource depletion, intruders, social dysfunction, and he found their explanatory power wanting. Although one of these factors might well contribute to a society's fall here and another of them to a society's fall there, none of them is present in more than a subset of cases. What's more, healthy societies tend to meet the challenges that come at them. Dr. Tainter sought a more fundamental causal factor. He landed on the concept of societal complexity. Societies often try to address problems by using complexity as a tool. They form military hierarchies. They concoct intricate religious orders and ceremonies. They build vast infrastructures. They create new governmental administrative bodies, and so on. But in societies, as in living organisms, increased complexity always comes with a metabolic cost. Over time, therefore, the use of complexity to solve problems hits diminishing marginal returns and becomes ineffective or downright pernicious. Complex societies, by their very nature, Dr. Tainter explained, quote, tend to experience cumulative organizational problems. As systems develop more parts and more complex interactions among these parts, the potential for problems, conflicts, and incongruities develops disproportionately. Ultimately, a society becomes so complex, so slow, so sclerotic, that it can't deal with new problems as they arise. At that point, it collapses, shedding complexity and reverting to a simpler state. What is complexity? Is runaway complexity inevitable? Is collapse inevitable? What are the signs that a society is on the road to collapse? Where are we along that path? Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I am Corbin Barthold, and I am pleased and honored to discuss these questions and much more today with Professor Joseph Tainter. Professor, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Um, so I hope that that introduction adequately uh, inter- you know, set out your work, but uh, nonetheless, I think it's good to start at the beginning. What is complexity, particularly in the context of societies? Complexity has many definitions. Uh, and what's important for anyone who uses the term is to define what they mean. Many people use the term without defining what they mean by it. Complexity uh, to an anthropologist uh, reflects the tendency of, of 
many human societies over time to develop more social roles, more institutions, more parts, um, higher levels of, of organization, and all of these amount to complexity. So I, I consider complexity to consist of two components, what I call structure and organization. Structure is the various parts that go to make up a system, and that can be a society, it can be an ecosystem, it can be the universe, the solar system, whatever. Those are, those are all systems that are composed of different parts. What makes the parts function together as a system is organization. Organization is the constraint on behavior that causes, let's say, the members of a society to behave in certain ways, to obey the law, to follow rules and regulations, to try to do, as most people do, to try to do well by their families and their neighbors. These are all aspects of organization. So structure and organization are the elements of complexity. And you spent a lot of time thinking about complexity um, leading it to collapse as it pertains to the Roman Empire in particular. And I think that's one that a lot of people have a somewhat basic working knowledge with. And so it's a good case study, um, in addition, just being very interesting. So could you set forth that sort of parallel for us? Of, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Set out that case, and then maybe you can get into how it parallels our situation. Before we do that, I, I think we need to talk a little bit more about complexity itself. Sure. The most important thing to understand about complexity is that complexity always has a metabolic cost. The cost ultimately is paid in the currency of energy, although we ourselves use surrogate currencies such as money, labor, time, effort, nuisance, annoyance, that are themselves surrogates for energy. Now, to maintain any kind of system in a highly complex state means uh, that in basic thermodynamics, you are keeping it from disintegrating. You have to keep a complex system from disintegrating because in the cosmos, in the universe, everything tends toward entropy, toward disequilibrium, toward collapse. Everything tends toward collapse, and it takes energy to keep systems away from collapse. So complexity always has an energy cost, and it is the changes in the costs of complexity over time that I see as leading to collapse. Now, to give you the example of the Roman Empire, which is really probably our best documented example of an ancient society collapsing. Uh, the Romans established an empire uh, around the Mediterranean basin and then extended into Northwestern Europe. And by the beginning of uh, let's say the end of the first century AD, they had largely accomplished that. Uh, the, the empire capped its size by the end of the first century AD and had mostly capped its size uh, even earlier at the beginning of the first century AD. Now, being the Roman Empire wasn't free. Uh, it cost being the Roman Empire. The Romans paid their bills, which were primarily the military, by producing um, currencies in gold and silver and base coins. The silver currency is the one that gives us the most information through time. Uh, early in the first century AD, the Romans were producing a silver coin called the denarius, 
It's uh, quite about the size of an American dime, but a lot thicker. But the important thing about it is that it was almost pure silver, 98 to 99%. Uh, and that was as pure as they could make it, as pure as they could make it technologically. Uh, this persisted through the first few centuries AD, or, I'm sorry, through the first few decades AD, until we get to the 60s AD when there were two crises um, under the reign of the Emperor Nero. One was a major war in the East, and the other was the fire of Rome, which caused a large part of Rome to burn, and then it had to be rebuilt. These were apparently dual expenses that the Romans couldn't afford uh, out of um, the, the currency, the silver reserves that they had available. So the emperor at the time, Nero, began in the year 64, a process of gradually debasing the silver content of the currency. He debased it from about 98 down to 93% silver. Well, that was the start of a slippery slope. Uh, what, what it meant was that the Romans began to pay for their ongoing crises, and there was always some crisis, by basically taxing the future. By debasing the currency, they were basically taxing the future to pay for present crises. Um, this continued uh, until about uh, the 140s, 150s AD, when uh, the silver currency stabilized. But then it began to go down again um, until uh, the late second century, when it was reduced, to, the silver currency was reduced to a little under 50% silver. It continued to go down until about the year 269, when it reached its low point, when the, what had been the silver denarius was contained less than 2% silver. So this, this was what happened to the finances of the Roman Empire. And the reason why this was happening was because they were continually faced with crises. Um, foreign invasions, particularly from the Parthians in the east and the Germanic peoples in the north. And so the, the, Rome, the Roman state had to maintain a large standing army to cope with this. And the large standing army was expensive. The army is estimated to have been about 300,000 in the first century AD. And the Roman Empire was the first state until modern times that maintained a standing army that was sufficient for all of its needs. This had never happened before. So they were starting off in, in a new direction. And of course, they had to pay the price. They had to tax the population for this. Now, I said, I said that complexity always has a cost. To us today, we're not aware of this because to us, complexity appears to be free. We pay for it with fossil fuels. But in the past, increasing the complexity of a society meant that people had to work harder, usually in the form of paying higher taxes. And this happened in the Roman Empire. Now, there was a series of crises, really a half century of almost constant crisis in the third century AD. Uh, the empire emerged from it. It did emerge successfully. It lasted for another good 200 years, um, but it did so by increasing in complexity. One of the problems that the empire had was that generals in charge of armies were always rebelling, and those rebellions either had to be put down or the rebelling general became emperor himself. To forestall this problem, they took um, what had been a handful of major provinces like Italy was a province, Spain was a province, and 
and and and reduced them, or, or excuse me, expanded them to the point where there were many small provinces. So more parts, higher complexity, higher costs. Every one of these small provinces had a governor and a court and an administration and its own standing military force, so that the over, overall the complexity of the Roman Empire increased. At the same time, uh, the cost of the army increased. It's estimated that the army may have doubled in size up to about 600,000. Um, it, uh, it, it, it came to include a higher proportion of cavalry. Uh, and anyone in, in your audience who has kept a horse knows that horses are very expensive. Um, so shifting to cavalry meant that the costs of the military grew, the size of the military grew, and as the size of the military grew, of course, the costliness of the military grew. So what we're seeing is increasing complexity in the military sphere, um, in uh, the adoption of uh, cavalry, which had not had a major part in the Roman army before. So this means more parts, more organization. Um, the generation development of new provinces, many new provinces, which means more parts and more organization. And, and ultimately, the, um, the empire reached a point where its increases in complexity reached um, the point of diminishing returns. And this is what happens to complex societies that makes them vulnerable to collapse. Um, they reach the point where further increases in complexity become simply too costly fail to yield the results that are needed. And ultimately in time, this happened to the Roman Empire, oh, beginning about the late fourth, early fifth century AD. So the reforms that they undertook in the third century, they worked, but they did at a, at a cost. Peasants had to pay higher taxes. Uh, the currency continued to depreciate until uh, finally there wasn't much left, um, but, but bronze coins with a few silver and gold coins. And so the, so the Roman Empire overall was simply economically weakened, and this is what made it vulnerable to collapse. Now when, when you study why an ancient society collapsed, what you want to find out is what made it vulnerable. And in this case, it was the constant crises and the, simply the cost of being the Roman Empire. They, in the end, they couldn't afford to be the Roman Empire. One example I've heard you give that was very illuminating to me of sort of what is co complexity in a modern context uh, was the TSA. So the 9-11 attack occurs, and um, this is not an invasion like Rome, but it's kind of a, a, an analogy. We realize there's this threat, um, you know, um, Islamist terrorism. So we take actions to protect ourselves against it, and it becomes this uh, sort of... Um, big elaborate theater that we all do at the airport. And that has a cost and complexity in all kinds of ways, the delay to us going through security, the cost of the government tracking these things and hiring the people and setting up rules and all that. And, and actually there's even sort of a, a meta complexity because then you have to create an agency, the TSA, and then you reorganize all the agencies. And, and separately, another whole approach was to create the Department of Homeland Security and then reorg reshuffle all the agencies, put the CIA under it and the org chart gets more complex and, and all of this. And I just thought that was very illuminating. And um, so that's actually, in hindsight, I'd, I'd like to say from the vantage of 2022, um, that was a, a small threat to us in the sense of our existential existence. Let's hope that I continue to be right about that. Um, 
But I've also heard you talk about how we face some really major challenges coming down the pike in the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. Um, and I see a lot of parallels or, or and just following you. You've said there's a lot of parallels between those threats and how we might have to approach them and what happened to the Romans. So I was wondering if you could um, get into that. Well, let, let me say, first of all, that, that the fact that complexity always has a cost means that we have to ask the question, why then does complexity increase? Particularly in the past, when, the, when, when people had to work harder to support complexity through things like higher taxes, why does complexity increase? And what I have argued is that most of the time, complexity increases to solve problems. And this is illustrated perfectly in the examples that you just gave. It's illustrated perfectly in our response to COVID, the coronavirus. Um, the government um, the, the government spent much more money engaged in new activities, uh, handing out vaccines, um, educating people. Uh, you can see uh, television advertisements all the time now, uh, which are part of complexity. There's simply another thing that the government didn't do before, but you see these advertisements encouraging people to get vaccinated. So you, you can see in, um, in our response to the coronavirus that indeed complexity grew to solve problems. Now, in, in answering your question, a number of us have been concerned, and this includes me, um, in recent years about um, the future supply of how we pay for complexity, and that's fossil fuels. And the important thing to understand about fossil fuels is not how much is left in the ground. There's a lot of it left in the ground still, but the cost of getting it out relative to what we get back. Again, we come back to this phenomenon of diminishing returns. We use a term for this, for energy output relative to energy input, and it's called energy return on investment. We usually use the acronym EROI for it. Now, by investment, we don't mean money. We mean how much energy does it take to get energy back? Now, to give some examples, in 1940, on this eve of World War II, the United States produced oil and gas at an EROI of 100 to 1. For every barrel of oil that we would invest, we got 100 barrels back. And basically, this is how we fought World War II. We fought, fought World War II. We, had, we actually had so much oil at the start of World War II that we weren't using, that really all we had to do to fight World War II was just open valves that had been closed off. You know, we already had the oil on hand to, to fight it. We didn't have to go look for more. So that was 1940, and that was how we fought World War II. But the EROI, the return on energy, energy return on investment, that's now down to 15 to 1. So we've gone from 100 to 1 down to 15 to 1. That's in the United States. In some other places, like the Persian Gulf, um, you can still find perhaps about 25 to 1 or maybe even a little higher. If you look at um, the oil shale in Canada, what it takes to get it, um, what we have to do with oil shale is we have to extract five barrels of it and then use essentially the equivalent of three barrels to produce two barrels that we can actually use. So we have to extract five barrels and then we get two barrels that we can actually use. Um, this is the extreme case, but 
you can look at um, the development of, uh, of producing oil in a couple of ways. One is simply the absolute supply, but the other way is that um, um, we have gone about drilling and producing oil the way humans do everything. We first plucked the low-lying fruit. Um, we first went after the large pools of oil in places like uh, Louisiana, Pennsylvania, Texas, Oklahoma, Southern California. And to a large extent, we have, we have found those large pools of oil and largely pumped them out. They're not completely, they're not completely exhausted, but there's certainly a lot less available from them than there used to be. So that means that we have to go to environments that are more and more uh, unstable politically, uh, let's say the Middle East to get oil, and that are unstable, let's say environmentally, like drilling in the Persian Gulf. And you know, we can use the example, the 2011 example of the Gulf oil spill as an example of, of what the dangers of that. And there's, there's now talk of drilling um, off the coast of Greenland, and that's the environment that sank the Titanic over a century ago. It's going to be a very risky place uh, to drill for oil, but they're talking about it. And at the same time, the technology has to, has to grow increasingly complex and capable. Um, oil drilling technology today is, I mean, it's just an extraordinarily complex um, uh, system of technologies. If, um, you have an, if you have an interest in engineering, you, one can admire the things that they have come up with to keep getting at the oil, but at the same time, every increase in technological complexity has a cost, as every increase in complexity has a cost. So this is what has concerned me um, over the last few years. In 2008, uh, when we had the major um, economic crisis, what was concerning me was not um, the economic crisis per se, it was the fact that oil then had gone up to $140 a barrel and people were paying about $450 a gallon for gas. Now, people are paying that much again for gas today, in the United States at least, but you have to remember that when I'm talking 2008, there's been a lot of inflation since then. So 450 a gallon in 2008, um, 450 a gallon today, uh, it was more expensive in 2008, and that was what was worrying me rather than so much the, the financial crisis. So what is the future? Um, can we shift to uh, renewable energy sources in time to maintain our system of complexity? And you have to ask, can we ever completely get off of fossil fuels? I'm, I'm not convinced of it. Uh, there are aspects of fossil fuels that we're always going to need. Uh, we need fossil fuels for petrochemicals. Uh, we need them for lubricants. But will we always need fossil fuels to some extent uh, as a fuel? There, there is nothing more convenient than a liquid fuel. And fossil fuels are it. So that is, um, now I've been talking too long on this now, but that's um, basically where my thinking and, and my interests have taken me from working on ancient societies and understanding what made ancient societies vulnerable to the direction we're going now. Well, I think that ties in wonderfully to the topic of innovation. I mean, as we were, um, I mentioned a moment ago, the, the challenges facing us and you focused aptly on uh, fuel and energy, but there's also, um, 
you know, if your population is not constantly growing and you're trying to increase total factor productivity, you know, the notion that you can continue growth on a shrinking population is a challenge. And there's the fact that, um, you know, pension funds are a form of complexity and, and sort of paying for the past in the future. Or, or I, you know, you talk a lot about uh, pushing the costs of the present onto the future is the way I mean to put it. Um, and pension obligations are one form of that. Debt is one form of that. So there's these other challenges that tie into to just energy per se. And the answer that many people have is innovation. You know, so declining population, total factor productivity, those kinds of things. We'll, we'll invent, you know, whatever the robot workers, right? In its or we'll go and we'll mine the asteroids in its extreme form. This is sort of the Kurzweilian singularity. You know, technology will take care of it all. And I don't think there's any need to waste much breath on the extreme form of that, which is just like, well, let's have a miracle. And it's like, okay, well, uh, there's really no discussion to be had. But it is true that we are an innovating society. And I think it seems likely that our innovation has certainly pushed our societal lifespan out. I often wonder what would the Roman Empire have looked like if they had a firm grasp on the scientific method? Uh, how would that have been different? Um, so while putting aside the notion that a singularity will just rescue us, uh, how far do you think we can go with innovation and how much optimism can it give us? Okay, this, this will be a long answer. So um, Please. But it's, but it's what I'm working on now. And, you know, as far as the Roman Empire goes, the late Roman Empire was highly innovative. There was just nothing. There was just nothing that would work. They couldn't come up with anything um, that would allow them to sustain themselves in the face of continuing uh, invasions from uh, Germanic tribes from the north. Now, there is a there is a conventional argument at, among many economists. Now, not all believe this anymore, and I don't want to criticize my colleagues in economics. So we'll call we'll call these people technological optimists. The argument is that. Resources don't really matter. That resources are never scarce, they're just priced wrong. And that as long as we have the price mechanism and uh, freedom to uh, free markets uh, and the government doesn't mess up the marketplace or the economy, then we'll always have incentives to innovate our way out of problems. We'll invent new resources or new ways of using the old ones or new technologies that extend the old resources. And up until this point, the technological optimists have been correct. Uh, here we are. Uh, most of us in the industrial countries, we live pretty well, uh, far better than our ancestors did. We live pretty well today. Now, one thing you have to realize is that because we have institutionalized innovation today, we think innovation is normal. People have always been innovative. innovative. In fact, that's not the case. Innovation as we know it today is a function of the modern era. It exists since the Industrial Revolution, and it exists because of fossil fuels. Fossil fuels give us the wealth to educate people very broadly, educate much of the population broadly, and educate a few people um, very specially, very narrowly uh, in technical fields in which they can innovate. The problem is, now, as I, as I said, innovation is not actually normal to the human species. In the past, uh, our human ancestors often went periods of tens of thousands of years 
um, with no changes in their technology, no changes in stone tool technology. Uh, later in time, when people were dependent on agriculture, um, techniques of agriculture persisted for centuries. And some of techniques of agriculture that were um, that were employed centuries ago are still being employed in some places today. Um, humans are not intrinsically innovative. The fact that we are so innovative today is a function of the Industrial Revolution and the fact that um, the economy today rewards innovation, uh, in part because we have become very wealthy through fossil fuels, and in part through competition, uh, competition between um, companies trying to bring out products that allow them to compete and stay in business. Now, it has always seemed to me that, um, that the technological optimists are making an assumption, an assumption that they're not aware of. The assumption is that the productivity of innovation in the future will be the same as it is today. And so I undertook with the assistance of some colleagues to ascertain whether or not this is likely to be the case. What we found um, is that the productivity of innovation is actually declining. Uh, my colleagues developed um, a database of US patents. Uh, it's an enormous database, it includes 3 million patents since the early 1970s. Uh, and it includes about half of US patents are granted to foreign entities. So it's actually, we actually have a measure of worldwide innovation. What we have found, well, actually, let me back up a second because I need to explain a little more. We need to understand how science has evolved and how innovation has evolved. Innovation and science have evolved from the days of what are called lone wolf naturalists in primarily the 19th century, people like Charles Darwin, Marie um, Curie, Gregor Mendel, and even earlier than that, Isaac Newton, Copernicus, Galileo, um, that innovation um, has evolved from the days of lone wolf scholars to the days now when innovation is conducted by large interdisciplinary teams uh, working in large expensive institutions. Uh, these institutions have support staffs. You know, Dar Darwin didn't have any support staffs. Uh, neither did Copernicus or Galileo. They did it all themselves. Today, innovators work in teams with support staffs. Uh, they have secretaries, they have janitors, they have motor pools, they have expensive buildings. And, and so more and more, it's taken the integration of more and more disciplines to be able to innovate over time as we have exhausted um, simple answers, simple things that were simple to come across. Um, you know, electricity is not out there any longer waiting for us to discover it. Uh, penicillin is not waiting for us to discover it yet. These things have been discovered. And so we have, once these things are discovered, we have to move on to more and more difficult and esoteric and complicated topics to, uh, to investigate. And this calls for the expansion of science. Science now is primarily done by large interdisciplinary teams, as I said, backed up by complex institutions. And you can see this um, if you take a look at a, a journal such as Science or Nature from the 1970s, when a typical article might have one or two or three authors per paper. And today, if you pick up most journals, you'll find that 
Individual articles contain multiple authors, each of which can each of whom contributes uh, a different aspect to solving the problem. That, um, in, in other words, as the complexity of the research problems has grown, our response has been to increase the complexity of scientific investigation. So, looking at patenting um, from 1972 until um, I think about 2012 was when we stopped. Um, the data run. What we found is that productivity, which we measure as patents per author, has declined by over 20% and is continuing to decline and it will continue to decline. So a decline of over 20% in the productivity of innovation measured as patents per author, consider the converse of that as patents per author declines the number of authors per patent increases. And this is in fact what has happened uh, in, in, in innovation that comes to the attention of the patent office, as well as in innovation in, let's say, scholarly research, such as the kind that I do. Uh, there was a time when I was younger when everything I wrote was individually authored. I now collaborate with colleagues, such as the colleagues I worked with um, on the innovation study. So we measured the productivity of innovation as patents per author. And I want to mention that this is the same measure as the measure of output, the measure of productivity in the economy as a whole, and that's output per worker. So we are measuring output per worker in the field of innovation. Um, productivity in innovation is declining. It will continue to decline. And what this means is that in the future, there are certain fields that are just going to become unproductive and they'll be abandoned. Now, this doesn't mean innovation is going to go away. Uh, innovation mostly consists of taking things that already exist and putting them together in novel ways. Uh, you can see that with the information technology revolution today. Now, if you go to buy a new car, if you can get one, uh, it's basically a rolling computer. Um, and, and this is going on in many fields. The fact that we're doing this interview um, technologically uh, you know, via Zoom um, is an example of that. That um, we, we are undergoing a revolution where things that already exist, various aspects of information technology, are being put together in new ways. And this, this isn't going to stop. Um, this will continue for some time, and it's gradually, or actually rather rapidly, remaking our economy. But it won't continue forever. And the productivity of innovation we've shown in information technology in both hardware and software is actually declining. Uh, people who work in information technology don't like to hear that. Uh, I gave a talk once at, a, at an information technology department. I won't say which university it was at. And I, I don't think they like the message. But I have a database of 3 million patents to back it up. So we're seeing it not just in science in general, not just in innovation in general, but really across a wide variety of technological fields. They are all declining in productivity, in innovative productivity. And so I'm a historian. I tend to think long term. I think that by the end of this century, our system of innovation will be very different. It will not be as productive as we know it today. So this Looping back, this calls into question uh, the view of technological optimists that we will always innovate our way out of problems. Well, what they have not taken into account is the declining productivity of innovation. 
they haven't even they aren't even aware that that it exists and that it is a problem. So this is why I'm not sure the innovation will forever save us. Well, that leads, of course, to the million dollar question, which is if we are a society like other societies, and obviously we are, we're human. um, And if we suffer from uh, growing, if not runaway complexity, and if that complexity has diminishing marginal returns on investment, uh, do we face collapse? And um, I think the answer on a long timeline, short of the miracle solution, is probably uh, yes, but you know that could be very, very far off, or it could be relatively near. You are not a clairvoyant, but you study these things very closely. I mean, what are your thoughts on where we stand on that path? Well, I've become reluctant to make forecasts like that um, for the simple reason that things happen, things that you can't anticipate. Um, no one among us anticipated COVID, coronavirus. No one foresaw it coming. And yet it has been enormously costly uh, in our societies. It has increased complexity. It's killed a million people in the United States and many, excuse me, many million more overseas. So I I am not anxious to make an out and out forecast such as, well, we're going to collapse. I do see challenges in the future. Global warming is going to be a very expensive challenge. Um, Decline in the productivity of innovation is going to be a challenge for us because we will lose some of the wherewithal to solve future problems. Um, So I I see in the future certain trends that are disturbing. Uh, Energy is uncertain in the future. Perhaps we can shift to renewable uh, energy sources in time, but I, uh, well, let's say I'm awfully pleasantly surprised if we do. I'm, I'm not certain that we're going to be able to. Um, perhaps we can um, still come up with innovations that will help solve a lot of problems. But looking a few decades into the future, I think we're going to have to cope with global warming. Large parts of the earth, people are going to be displaced. I mean, we may be talking hundreds of thousands or even millions of people out of coastal Bangladesh. Um, In the Pacific, there are entire nations that are going to go underwater. And the rest of the world is going to have to step in and help these people, uh, help them relocate and and set up new lives in other places. And this is in a world that's already overcrowded. So I see a future of problems with increasing costs and increasing complexity and an energy base that is uncertain. Will our energy base allow us to increase in complexity and costliness to solve these problems? And to me, this is the thing to watch out for. Um, Some, uh, mainly under the label of primitivists, basically would recommend that we, uh, they wouldn't put it, well, maybe they would. Uh, The way I will put it is say, spark collapse now, just do it. And basically go back to uh, tribal or hunter-gatherer ways. Uh, We'll be in communities around the fire and that'll be uh, actually better for us spiritually or whatever. I mean, it's hard for me to get into this without having a, a slight tinge of disdain because there's no way to do this without basically killing off 80, 90% 80, 90% of the global population and a horrific genocidal catastrophe. Um, 
And yet, uh, some of these folks, uh, they'll actually cite your work. Um, and so I, I'm shifting gears here a little bit, but um, you pop up in fascinating places, I find, your work. Uh, do you find that it gets abused in ways that bothers you ever? Um, uh, oh, I, I, I find a lot of people don't understand it. Um, the economics of complexity as a problem-solving function is a pretty esoteric concept. And so it's not surprising that people don't, a lot of people don't understand it. Now, I'm gratified that a lot of people do understand it. Um, I mean, you're, you're a good example of that. A lot of people do understand it, but I think I think the concept of collapse is used by a lot of people who don't understand it. Um, just at the beginning of this month, I was in a conference in Denmark where the collapse, the term collapse was used a lot um, by people who didn't really seem to understand it. Uh, they even came up with the term collapsology to uh, indicate the study of collapse. Um, the, the conference consisted largely of a bunch of breakout groups, and I just stayed away from groups that had the collapse in their titles. Um, but what I was able to glean was that um, people don't understand it. Um, and, 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 and people respond to it emotionally. They respond to our current problems and our future problems emotionally rather than rationally. As you just said, um, a collapse would be a catastrophe that we do not want to go through. I mean, you, you, I think you said millions of people would die. The answer is billions, billions of people would die in a oh, yes. fairly short period of time if we were to have a collapse. Now, I teach a class in sustainability um, here at Utah State University. And I usually begin the class with a lecture um, about what life would have been like in, let's say, somewhere in Northwestern Europe in the 18th century. Uh, what would life have been like? Well, life expectancy would be about 40 years. A woman could expect to have anywhere from four to seven or eight children of which only two would live to adulthood. So the population would grow only very slowly. 90% um, of us would be farmers. There would be very little in the way of formal education. Uh, and most education would um, reside within religious institutions, within the clergy. Um, the nobility would grab as much of the produce as they can. Uh, the king would grab as much produce as he could because he needs to support the army, um, at, at least when the country goes to war. Th this is what life would be like. So, yeah, I, I emphasize when I talk about sustainability, I, I emphasize that the most basic question is to ask, what do you want to sustain? Uh, surprisingly enough, I mean, it's just it's such a simple sounding question, but people don't ask it. They simply use the term sustainability without specifying what they want to sustain. So I use that example and I say what we want to sustain is the difference between the way of life then and the way of life we've achieved today. We don't want to give it up. And we certainly don't want to give it up catastrophically in a rapid collapse. On a similar note, in your, um, in your book, you talk about mystical factors. You go through all the different explanations that people try to come up with for collapse across societies, across history. And then you have this, this one bucket that includes uh, the most prominent examples, probably Oswald Spengler. Um, and it's a fascinating 
category to me. In a nutshell, it's people who believe that societies are basically akin to uh, biological organisms that have very predictable birth, growth, decline, and death cycles on this almost spiritual level. It, it tends to connect very closely to cultural uh, cultural factors, as if there's something in the human spirit that is vigorous and alive early in societies and then hits this sort of decadence and leads to this uh, deracination and people become effete. And the, uh, you know, in, Sp in Spengler's category, actually, it's remarkable. He says it all is about to go to pot when people start to move to cities because they lose the connection to their sort of mystical root culture. And that there's this period when things look really good uh, where you get your Mozarts and whatever, but that's actually a sign that you're already in the twilight. I mean, it's all very uh, interesting reading. It's uh, sort of sexy in its way. Um, and you do a pretty good job of expl explaining, though, that, you know, scratch the surface and it's just uh, unfalsifiable pot, basically. Um, looking around today, those theories are as popular as ever. I still see them all the time. Uh, if anything, they're gaining steam. Uh, do you have any thoughts on on why that is and why they're so alluring to us? And is it a difficulty to your work to kind of keep cutting away at that weed that keeps growing? Well, I'll give a roundabout answer to that. Um, and the fact that we're doing this interview is, is a symptom of part of my answer. Uh, I, I For the last several years, well, I don't know, the last 30 years or more, I, I've always done a handful of interviews per year. But suddenly, over the last year or year and a half, it, it, the number of requests has just spiked. Um, I've, I've had a number of requests this year, a number of requests last year, that are just more than I've ever been requested to do before. And so it has made me think that uh, even though people have acted, at least in the United States, have, have acted defiantly in, in respect to getting vaccinated and wearing masks and so forth like that. I think people are frightened. People are frightened of all the things that are going on in the world. This conference I was just at in Denmark was termed exploring the polycrisis. Well, I haven't, I haven't encountered the term polycrisis before, but you can see what it means. It refers to the many crises that are unfolding simultaneously on us. And, and it, it seems to me, uh, this, is, this is a suspicion, I don't have proof of this, but I, I suspect that journalists have picked up on this fear. And so they keep asking me, will I give talks about complexity and collapse? And uh, I, I, I consider it an obligation to do so, so as many as I can, I, I, I do give talks. So the increase in what I call mystical understandings of collapse. I, I, th I think it's part of that because it's, it's what people have. It's how most people think. Um, people think in terms of their culture, whether they're aware that they have a culture or not. Um, but people, people think in terms of their culture and they think in terms of um, make America great again, decline various mystical things like that, that, that I, I have just, I mean, I've simply rejected in the book and, and you've just given a good uh, accounting of them and with problems with them that uh, the, these are not explanations. Um, if anything, they're epiphenomena, they're symptoms 
but they don't really explain why things are happening, why we have multiple crises unfolding at once. Um, it's funny you should mention the Make America Great Again. I, I think of you often, actually, when I hear the term, particularly drain the swamp, because um, it is this very surface level sort of meme version of an argument that you actually sort of make in your book, building on Manker Olson uh, and the discussion of the elaboration of administration and bureaucracy. And I, I am kind of curious, do you sort of cringe when you hear that? Because there's this serious argument to be made that uh, runaway bureaucracy is part of this problem of complexity, but it often gets um, sort of uh, bumper stickered in this way that is sort of just very culturally inflammatory. Well, as I said, complexity increases to solve problems, and that includes bureaucracy. Um, you know, as, as is often pointed out, when Congress wants to cut budgets, uh, it, it is that every element of the budget uh, appeals to someone and serves someone. So what do you cut? Every, every element of the budget um, has arguments supporting it. It came about for a reason. Uh, so no, so no I, don't, I don't use terms like runaway bureaucracy. I, I prefer things that are more precise and hopefully scientific. Mm -hmm. um, it is remarkable to me how, as you said, you, you, you are getting increasing interviews. Um, so as we come to a close here, I, I, I want to kind of ask a, a personal, for a personal reflection. I mean, you wrote this book, The Collapse of Complex Societies, uh, what is it, 35 or so years ago? You, when you were about my age. Um, and it's remarkable to me. I mean, I, how do you feel about the fact that this thing that you wrote uh, decades ago is still uh, talked about? I mean, is it, uh, you, you don't have to give me your sales figures, but is, is as influential as ever. I mean, how many of us write a book that is, uh, has this kind of staying power? I mean, what's that like? Well, I, I think it's the topic. And um, if, if you'll know, excuse a little bit of ego, I think I've handled the topic better than, than earlier authors did. I came to thinking about collapse and writing about collapse because I was dissatisfied with the existing explanations of it, including mystical ones, as you just described. And that's all elaborated in, in one of the chapters in the book, one of the early chapters. So I, I, came, I came to collapse. Um, I didn't come to collapse because I thought I was going to save the world. I came to collapse as an academic exercise, something that interested me. Um, as a historian and an archaeologist and an anthropologist, I am intrinsically interested in the evolution of human societies. And a great part of that evolution has been growth in population and complexity. And so that's why I came to do the book. Um, and and it's, as I look at that edition of it now, I realize it's, it's written more as an academic tome. Uh, but of course, I hoped it would break out of academia. I, I knew it was a topic that would be of interest. And I'm glad to say it seems that it did. Looking at it now um, and having this conversation, I, I, I get the sense that almost all of it um, in your mind stands up. Is there anything in it that you would uh, revise today or that, um, that you've rethought in a fundamental way? Or, or is it well, still I, something? Yeah, I, that... I ended with some comments on the Cold War which unfortunately ended shortly after I published the book. So that, that part of it is, is no longer pertinent. Um, Although the dynamics I was talking about are still pertinent, the dynamics of competition. And, and I've written other stuff on that topic. 
Well, and as you note, uh, now with the way global, our society is in effect global, uh, we're learning this with the you know supply chain stuff. Uh, you mentioned that a collapse today would be itself global. And I remember being disturbed by that and reading, reading it in that book. And that seems to remain as true today as ever. Um, please, as we're at the end here, you've already touched on a little bit, but um, it simultaneously is a little bit unfair to invite you and have you talk about entirely a book that was written in 1988. I mean, what what are you working on right now? What's on your mind? And if there's anything you'd like to point our listeners to uh, as we close out, you know, please, by all means, uh, uh, do so. Well, as I said, the most recent thing I've worked on is innovation. Um, and, and over the last few years, as I've worked on sustainability, I've focused primarily on energy and innovation. Uh, not energy in the technical sense, I'm a social scientist, but energy in society and trends in the consumption of energy and what you can do uh, with energy surpluses. And, and, and so that, that and the innovation I, I, are really my most recent studies. I haven't written books on any of them. Well, no, I take it back. Um, there is a, a book that came out after the Gulf oil spill. I wrote it with a, with a, petroleum engineer, Thaddeus Patsik. Uh, it's called Drilling Down. Uh, it's probably still available. It, it's a short book. I wrote it for um, for, a, for a popular audience. Uh, if anyone does want to go look it up, I would point you to chapters one, five, six, and nine. Uh, the other chapters are pretty technical. Well, Dr. Tainer, as I said at the outset, uh, it is an honor and a privilege to have you on, and it really has been. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Um, I am Corbin Barthold. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. If you enjoy conversations like this, uh, please do give the podcast a five-star rating wherever you listen. And while you go do that, I will uh, go and start preparing the next episode. So thank you all. Until next time. Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org. <laughs>